Hebrews 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, but whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We can read it a hundred times, and you won't fully grasp it. What a passage. Christmas and Easter have always been the most difficult Sundays for me to preach. And you may think that is strange because those are the two times that we celebrate that really the two cornerstones of, of Christianity, the incarnation and the resurrection. What preacher cannot preach on the birth of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? The problem is not preaching that. The problem is there's nothing new that you can say about either event. The Christmas story has been preached from every possible angle and even invented some angles to preach it from. I, um, I know one preacher who preached a Christmas series a few years ago from Ebenezer Scrooge. I, I don't know if he thought maybe he had exhausted everything the Bible had to say and needed some more resources for Christmas. I, I don't know. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to preaching Christmas. And then I have the extra burden that I don't particularly love Christmas like the rest of the world seems to do. I, I don't really get into the Christmas spirit. I have never decorated a tree. I have never stuffed a stocking. I really don't like Christmas carols. It's hard to shout on, oh, come all you faithful. That's just, just how I am. Now, I'm not raining on your parade. Please, please understand, all right? I, I, I enjoy parts. I enjoy watching the kids open Christmas presents in their joy, and, 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 and I, I enjoy hot chocolate and eggnog, and I have already planned that on Christmas morning, I am sleeping in till at least, at least 5.30 on Christmas morning. I, I'm going to just, I'm just, I've already planned that. I, um, I had planned, I had planned this morning to preach a message on the seven deadly sins of Christmas. <laughs> Greed and ingratitude and lying, and gluttony, and drunkenness, and debt. I, I was going to preach on that, because really that would be more commensurate with my spirit during this time, the seven deadly sins. But I realized it was really a rant, not a sermon, so I decided not to go there. You know, some Christians really enjoy Christmas. You know, there are some Christians who believe that you should not celebrate Christmas at all. And we know that many of the traditions are rooted in pagan history, a lot of Catholic uh, traditions in, in Christmas traditions. Uh, some believe that the Christmas tree is a bell bush and you are bowing down and when you're worshiping that when you get a present under the tree and that we're participating in a pagan holiday. And I gave a great verse for all of us, for all of us concerning that. It is Colossians 2 and verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or holiday, holy day or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. I, I would not want to judge you if you choose not to celebrate. I would hope you would not be judgmental of those who do. 
I think it's more important to show charity toward those who don't share every standard you have than to allow the standards you have turn you into a Pharisee. And so we have, we have both in our church, and I thank God for whatever side that you stand on. And then, of course, we understand that December 25th is not actually the birthday of Jesus. There is no evidence that Jesus was born on December the 25th. There's probably more evidence that he was not. But if the world wants to acknowledge the birth of Jesus, I am fine to do it along with them on whatever day they want to. This is a good day to me. It doesn't matter to me when he was born. I'm just glad that he was. Because that's kind of where I fall down on it. The theological word for all of it is incarnation. It's not a Bible word. It is a word that the church has adopted to describe his birth as a child, the fact that God became a man. It literally means to take on flesh or to be embodied in flesh. And you have to be careful when you're defining extra-biblical words like omniscience or, or incarnation because, because the subtlety of language may not give the true doctrinal meaning of that word. And you've, you've got to be very careful. It wasn't just an appearance as a man. No, he became a man. Just as much as you are, he was manifest as a man. And it is a mystery. It's a mystery that the human mind has never fully grasped. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, key word. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. There's only one person that ever lived that fit all of those descriptions. That's Jesus Christ. By the way, if you are carrying a New International Version or an English Standard Version or a New American Standard Bible or a host of other modern translations, they would change that word God to He. He was manifest in the flesh. He begs the question of who. It leaves it open. And, and it's, not, it's not just that that, that you can say, well, well, it, it means Jesus, but, but, but you've destroyed even then the very core of the doctrine. It is not just that the historical Jesus was manifest in the flesh. No, it is that He is God. It is God manifest in the flesh. In all pagan religions, there is an idea of gods who manifested themselves to humans in human forms, or at least took on a form to be able to cross that divide and interact with mankind. And then Hollywood has invented superhuman creatures that are a mixture of divine and human, bionic man or wonder woman or whatever it might be, more divine than human, but nobody really believes that. Everybody understands that that is just fiction. Well, there's nothing in fact or fiction, nothing in history or fiction that even compares to what God did at the incarnation. Because it is such, such a stupendous truth, because it is such a majestic mystery, it would be an insult for you and I to claim to celebrate the birth of Christ this week and not at least think deeply about what it means that we're celebrating. The nation of Israel, they anticipated the Messiah. They sure didn't anticipate him that way. Even with the prophet Isaiah prophesying that a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, they still did not appreciate what was actually going to happen. And I'm afraid that there is so much light thinking about the birth of Christ and the manger scene and all of that, that we miss the true wonder of the mystery. 
In fact, I would suggest to you that Christmas would be more enjoyable if you could somehow focus on the Christian Christmas than you did on the commercial Christmas. See, Christmas is supposed to be a time that is filled with joy. It is a known anomaly that during this time of joy, there's more depression, more suicide, more drunkenness than there is in any other time of the year. And the reason why is that greed and gluttony have never brought joy. It's always brought depression is what it's done. The world spends more and more every year in the shopping season. It starts earlier and earlier and earlier every year. But the returns are very minimal. But if you could somehow, if somehow you can make Christ the celebration and everything else is just a sidebar, I believe it would be true joy in the season for the Christian. That's what the incarnation is about. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. 1 John 4 tells us that any person that does not, or any spirit that does, that does not confess that Christ is come in the flesh, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Whether it's Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons or the Muslims or the Unitarians or whatever name it might be that denies Jesus Christ as God, that is the spirit of Antichrist. And without the incarnation and without the resurrection, you have no Christian faith. That is what makes it unique among all other religions. That's what I've been thinking about for the last several days. Now, there are two books in the Bible that tells you the details of the birth of Christ. That is Matthew and that is Luke. If you have a tradition of reading the Christmas story on Christmas morning before you open presents, you will read it from either Matthew 2 or you will read Luke chapter 2. And this morning I'm going to assume that you know the story. We're not going to turn there. I'm going to assume that you know the shepherds and the star and the east and the wise men from afar and, and all of that. And, and, and what you read is the incarnation through the experience or through the eyes of human characters, the supporting cast. You read about Joseph, what he was thinking, and Mary, what she was doing, and the songs she wrote. And you read about John and Zacharias and the shepherds and the wise men. You read about Herod in Matthew chapter 2. But even with those couple of chapters, the details of the birth of Christ still is very, very scant. In fact, Luke goes through this long, long narrative. And then Luke says, And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. And that's it. That's the details that you have about the actual birth of Christ. You read more about angels and shepherds and his mother and the supporting cast than you do about the greatest birth that ever took place in the Gospels. Then you get to the epistles. When you get to the epistles, you have Peter and Paul and John and you have Luke and they write often about that birth, about that incarnation. What I noticed this week, however, is that when the New Testament writers point back to when God became a man, they never say anything about the shepherds. They never refer to the wise men. After you get past Luke, they never say anything about Herod, and they never say about the baby in the manger. They, they, they don't talk about the star in the sky. They, they don't mention the statement. They don't mention any of that. It, it seems like that after Luke chapter 2, that they say nothing about Bethlehem or Herod or the slaughter of all of those babies. They never mention the gold and the myrrh and the frankincense. No, when they look back, all they talk about is Jesus. They just talk about Him. Because what you have is you have the human side of it in the Gospels. When you get to the epistles, you have the divine side of it. 
This is what God thinks about the incarnation. This is what God, this is God's perspective on what took place in that manger. And the emphasis is no longer on a baby in a manger. The emphasis is on who he really is. He is God in the flesh, come down to be the Savior of men. And when you get to the epistles, there are a number of passages that give you the theology, the doctrine of it, the deep thinking of it. You could go to Philippians chapter 2. Oh, what a passage of Scripture that deals with his humiliation and then his exaltation. Boy, that great passage of Scripture. You could go to 1 Timothy 3.16, the verse that I quoted, God, the, uh, God manifests in the flesh. Just, just dwell on that passage. There's a number of great passages. I think the greatest is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. This is God's perspective on what happened in that manger. Now you know that Hebrews was written to Jewish believers to affirm to them, to assure to them that Jesus was better than anything they'd given up in Judaism. These Jewish believers that have gotten saved or are contemplating getting saved, they have a lot to sacrifice, they have a lot to give up. Judaism, the temple, the sacrifices, the, the high priest, all of that, they've got to forsake that in order to trust Jesus Christ. That's a lot to give up. And I believe that the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to, to these Jewish believers and, 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 he, and he's writing to them to tell you that, that anything that you lose in Judaism is so much better in Christ. Now, you gave up an earthly priesthood, but you have an high priest, Jesus Christ. And, and you gave up, a, you gave up a, an earthly sacrifice, but here's a sacrifice once and for all. And you give up an earthly temple, but there's a temple made in heaven, not, not made with hands. And so, 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 so anything that you give up in Jesus, it is better. Well, that's the thing. Verse 1 through 3 is really the, the opening statement, the opening salvo, and the rest of the book is going to expand upon that. And in 1 through 3, he's talking about Jesus. But he doesn't talk about a baby in a manger. And he doesn't tell me about the shepherds. And he doesn't tell me about the sheep. No, no, it just tells you who that baby was. And that's really what I want to give you this morning. It's not, it's not the wise men. It's not, it's not the three gifts. It's not, no. Who is that? Laying in that manger. Who is it that we claim to celebrate? And if I could leave you this morning with one thought, the thought would be Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Three things. First of all, in verse number one, there is the preparation for Christ. Look at verse one. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. If you have a habit of writing in your Bible, you can write in the margin beside verse 1, Old Testament. That's what it's talking about. The fathers are Jewish fathers, Jewish patriarchs, the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's simply telling you that God spake in the Old Testament times past and various means. And sometimes he spoke very audibly like he did with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And sometimes he spoke through dreams and visions. And sometimes he spoke through types and shadows. And sometimes he spoke through the mouth of the prophets or the mouth of a king or the mouth of a priest. But God spake in times past. Now when Hebrews is written, Hebrews is written around 60 or 61 A.D., it's been about 460 years since God spoke. Malachi, last prophet of the Old Testament. Between Malachi and Matthew, there are 400 silent years. 
In those silent years, there is no prophecy. There is no revelation. There is no, there is no word from God. Just God was silent. And then you have the birth of Christ, and yeah, you've got about 60 years, and you come to the book of Hebrews. And so you've had a long period of time when, when he's referencing when God at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. It's been a long time. Been a long time since God spoke to his people through those means. No new revelation, no prophecy, no, no preaching, no visions, nothing like that. When God spoke to men in the Old Testament, sometimes it was in the form of history. Sometimes it was in the form of poetry. Sometimes it was in the form of law. But God spoke in times past. We call that the revelation of God. And the reason we call it the revelation of God is because that when God spoke, he revealed himself to man. You would not know anything about God. In fact, you would not even know that there is a God if God had not revealed himself to you. Everything that I know about God is in the book that he wrote about himself. And the revelation of God in the Old Testament, it is progressive and it is incomplete. When we say it is progressive, that does not mean that it moved from error to truth or from bad to good. No, it moved from incompleteness to completeness. Noah did not have as much revelation as Daniel had. As the Old Testament is written, God reveals more and more of himself and his program for the ages. But do you know what the number one theme of the Old Testament is? It is Jesus Christ. Christ. You know what God was saying back then? He was saying Jesus Christ. John 5 and verse number 39, search the scriptures for in them ye think that you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Emmaus wrote, Emmaus wrote, Jesus speaking to those two disciples, beginning at Moses and the prophets, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Scriptures is the Old Testament scriptures. And here's what simply happened. Jesus took them all the way back to the book of Genesis, that's Moses, and said, let me show you where I am in this Old Testament. I'd have loved to have been there. Hey guys, see to the woman, that was me. Hey, hey, fellas, the ark, that was me. The Passover lamb, that was me. Hey, hey, the brazen serpent, that was me. The smitten rock, that was me. And from Genesis to Malachi, from the seed of the woman to the great judge of the universe in Malachi, that's me. What God was doing back there in the Old Testament is he is preparing the world for Christ to come. He was simply telling us he's coming. And you and I can look back at the prophecies as a whole. We, we, have the, we have the advantage of hindsight. We, we, we have the New Testament. We have the complete revelation. And we can look back now having the whole picture and we can see the Old Testament as a complete picture. They didn't have that back then. No, they were given little pieces of it stretched out over 1,500 years. And they're given little fragments of information here and there. And he could have said that the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, he could have said back then that that seed of the woman would be born in Bethlehem. But he didn't say that until he got to Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. He spreads that out is what he does. Sometimes the prophets writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit didn't even understand what they were writing. But God was preparing the world for Jesus. He was preparing the Jewish nation for their Messiah. God spoke at sundry times and in divers manners. Preparation for Christ. But then in verse number 2 you have the presentation of Christ. Hath in these last days 
spoken unto us by his son. Can I just say, can I just say that when God spoke by his son, he was finished speaking. That's his final word. His complete revelation is in him. Jesus is all that God has to say. There is no other word from heaven. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. If you want to hear God, you have to hear Jesus. And what the New Testament writers do is they, is they look back at Jesus and they tell you the meaning of his virgin birth and his righteous life and his substitutionary atonement and his bodily resurrection. And they're not, they're not adding to the puzzle. They're not filling in missing pieces. No, they're telling you that this is what God said when he sent his son. There is no other message. Psalm 1 and verse 14, the word, capital W. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. It wasn't part of the truth. He is all of the truth. He revealed God, he, 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 he revealed God fully by being fully God. Colossians says, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No longer is God speaking in diverse manners and, and, and partial prophecies. No, this is his final word. When Jesus came, he revealed all that there is to know about God because he is God walking in the flesh. You can see in Jesus everything that you need to know about the Father. You see the wisdom of God. You see the power of God. You see the omniscience of God. You see the love of God. You see the justice of God. You see it all in Christ. No wonder the Lord said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. <laughs> if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't understand how that baby in a manger could be fully man and fully God. I don't understand the mystery of godliness, but I believe it. The Old Testament paved the way and said he's coming. The New Testament says this is who he is when he came. He is God. Everything you need to know about God is found in Christ. You can see in Him a God who hates sin because Jesus died for it. You can see in Him a God who forgives sins because He became our substitute on that cross. Whatever you want to know about God is found in Jesus Christ. You have the preparation for Christ. You have the presentation of Christ in verse number 2 and 3. You have the preeminence of Christ. Now what the writer of Hebrews is going to do, he's going to give you seven statements these seven statements are meant to just demonstrate the preeminence of Jesus Christ. This is the argument for why he is better. Very quickly look at it. Hath he in this, these last days spoken unto us by his son? Here's the first statement. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Now the Jewish, Jewish nation, they understood the law of inheritance a lot different than we do. The firstborn received the inheritance. He received the double portion of the family estate because he's in the position of prominence. Colossians says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of God. Not the first one born. It's not, not talking about order of birth, but it's talking about a position of preeminence. The, the son bore the very image of the father. And since the son is the very essence of the father, then, then, then everything flows down from the father to the son, humanly speaking. And, and Jesus is the begotten of God. Since he came from the father, he possesses everything that the father possesses. 
Inheritance follows sonship. Psalm 2 says that God has given him the nations as an inheritance. It's an amazing thing when you think that all that God has created belongs to Jesus Christ. And when he was in the world, he hadn't owned nothing but the clothes on his back. He was a poor man who walked among poor men, had not a house, had nobody where to lay his head. He owned no earthly possessions, but when he comes the next time, he will come with the title deed of the earth, and every living creature will bow their knee and acknowledge him as Lord of Lord and King of Kings, whom is appointed heir of all things. Notice the next statement in verse 2. By whom also he made the world. John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things made by Him. Without Him, it's not anything made that was made. He's the Creator. That means He was the beginning of all things. He's the heir, which means He's the ending of all things. In the beginning, in the beginning. The beginning of what? Not the beginning of God. Not the beginning of Jesus Christ, but in the beginning of anything else, beginning of time, before anything was ever spoken into existence, there's Jesus, there's the Father, there's the Holy Spirit creating everything in the being. Notice in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory. Now that statement has always eluded me. I'm not always sure I've understood that. Hold your finger here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's a wonderful verse and I've read it a thousand times, but boy, this week it really stood out to me. But 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, look at verse number 6 if you would, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And that's normally where we stop. Read it again. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, God's a spirit. And God's invisible. So how would an invisible God manifest himself to men in the Old Testament when he wanted to show himself to somebody? Well, the way that God did it in the Old Testament was in the form of light. That light is the Shekinah glory of God. When Adam walked with God in the Garden of Eden before the fall, they probably saw the visible presence of God in a bright light. They didn't see a man like them walking down because God had not yet taken on the form of a man. When God led Israel through the wilderness, he did so by a bright cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Moses said, let me see your glory. And God said, I'll let you see my hinder parts. And he showed him just a fraction. And when Moses came off to the mountain, the Bible said that his face shone. His face shone. Transfiguration, Matthew 17. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple, it was a bright cloud that filled that temple. When Moses wanted to see God's glory, it was a bright light. So when God revealed himself, he revealed himself in light because he is an invisible spirit. When Jesus came, he's the brightness of that glory. The word was made flesh dwelt among us when we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. From Jesus shines forth all the attributes of God. But being the brightness of his glory, here's the next part, the express image of his person. He's the exact same thing God is. Some commentators have tried to describe it as him being the exact duplicate or the copy of God. And I, I, I'm afraid to say that I, 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 it's something about that doesn't sit right with me. I don't know that it's the right wording. I, I, I'm not sure about that. So I would just say he's very God. 
He is the image of the invisible God. Image means the exact replication. You are seeing the invisible God in the visible body of Jesus Christ. The notice upholding all things by the word of his power. He created it and he sustains it. He's the one holding it all together. He's the one that keeps the universe from being a, it keeps it from being, keeps it being a commos, commos instead of a chaos. Scientists talks about the law of nature. There are no such things. Mother nature, mother nature is not doing anything. The laws of nature are the laws by which Christ holds things together. I tell you this morning, I tell you this morning, there's only one Father God and His Son, Jesus Christ. He controls every atom. He controls every neutron. He controls every proton. I tell you, He directs the rotations of the planets and He calls forth the seasons after each one and He tells the sun when to rise and the stars when to shine and the moon when to glow and the tides rise and fall at His command. He's upholding all things by the word of His power. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm glad the verse doesn't stop there. Because if the verse stops there, we go away and we marvel at a God who became flesh and God who is all-powerful. And you and I will die in our sins. But it says, when he had by himself purged our sins. It would be a wonderful truth and we could shout till we die that he's God incarnate. And that he became flesh and he became a wonderful man. It's a wonderful thing to know that He's the Creator and He has all of this power to run the universe. But something greater than creation is redemption. The most wonderful work that God did is when Christ went to a cross and died for my sins. And don't ever lose the wonder that it is God dying for me. I love the statement, by Himself. The prophets couldn't do it. The priests couldn't do it. The sacrifices couldn't cleanse sin. He did that day on the cross, what millions of sacrifices had failed to do. All of the Old Testament sacrifices, all it did is it covered sins, but it did not purge sins. And it pointed to the fact there was a desperate need for a once-for-all sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews is making the case that for all of the excellencies of Christ, none is greater than His work on the cross. By Himself purged our sins. Notice the last statement. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the place of exaltation. In our simplest terms, God exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name. The right hand of the Bible always symbolizes power and authority and preeminence. When Jesus ascended back into heaven as our high priest, he did what no priest in the Old Testament ever did. He sat down. You studied the tabernacle temple. There's no chair there. And the reason why is the pre-sacrifice was never done. When his day's work is done, the next morning, you got to make another sacrifice. And the next day, you got to make another sacrifice. It's never done. But he hung on that cross. The high priest and the sacrifice on the cross. And he takes that blood and sends back to heaven. And the Bible says that he sat down. No more sacrifices. No more crosses. Finished the work that God had sent him to do. They say, preacher, what does all this have to do with Christmas? I, I, I wanted to tell you the story about Mary and Joseph and donkeys and sheep in the stall and shepherds from afar. And boy, that's, that's wonderful. Thank God for that. 
But I hope that you grasp that's the human side of the birth of Christ. This is the divine side. It is bigger. It is bigger than a baby in a manger. That what we are celebrating this week, no matter how you do it, if you do it at all, it doesn't matter. Here's what we're celebrating. That God, God came down to this earth and He became a man just like me that He might bear my sins in His body. It is the wonder of wonders. And I want you to think about it I want you to ponder it. I want you to dwell upon it. And when you've thought about it all that you can, you're going to do like me. You're going to throw your hands up in the air and you're going to say, it is bigger than my mind can conceive. But by faith, I believe it. And I worship the Son for what He did for me in the manger and on that cross. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?